Hi, this is Father Andrew, and this is the All Souls Catechesis Podcast. This year, our theme is Signs of Life, Reflections on Hope. And we're going to be hearing from members of our community about where they found hope in this last year. And today we have with us Joel Erickson. Um, Joel, for those who don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, yeah. Well, um, Joel Erickson, my wife is Bethany Erickson, and you might know um, some of my kids. I have four, and uh, actually there, there is one on the way, so that might be a little news for, for some of the souls out there. Um, our fifth child will arrive uh, somewhere around August 31st, but um, you may know our children on this side of the womb as Audrey, uh, Austin, Alexi, or AJ, as he is um, most commonly referred to, and um, Eliza, our, our youngest. She'll be turning two this summer. Um, Which is incredible that... to me. Like, COVID, <laughs> I know. <laughs> seeing her, like, I don't know, one or two weeks ago, like, walking around, it's because I haven't seen her that much during COVID. It's like, yeah, th this, per this baby, I haven't met that much at all is walking around and like, yeah. Yeah. It's so funny. Much. She's, she's had a very like COVID has been most of her life, you know? <laughs> um, right. And, and so she's kind of at the stage where you've got the stranger danger. We're not sure how much of that is just, you haven't seen a lot of people. So you're wary of any other human being because you right. live with, you know, five or six other people. So yeah. Um, but yeah, Be Bethany and I met sort of at Wheaton. We, we both graduated, uh, Wheaton college in 05. Um, I stayed for a master's degree and, um, one of the guys I was living with, um, the, the woman he was dating ultimately married, uh, was good friends with Bethany and they set us up and the mm -hmm. rest, as they say is history. Um, we've been at all souls for about 11 years and, uh, Fun fact that I think most souls know, but uh, Bethany actually converted to Roman Catholicism a couple of years ago. So we are um, exploring living life on either side of the Tiber, um, yeah. which you is, guys are which our is ecumenical relationship. Yeah, yeah, we're we're, we're <laughs> he uh, trying to heal the uh, Protestant Catholic divide one relationship at a time. Doing your part. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that's us. All right. Well. We can dive right in here. Um, where have you found hope this year? It's a good question. And it took me a little while to come up with my answer. I know when, uh, when the theme for this catechesis was announced, I knew I, I wanted to participate, but I didn't know, I didn't know where I'd found hope. Um, it wasn't that I didn't have hope, but nothing seemed like a very shiny example of it as, mm -hmm. as I thought about the year. Um, just knee-jerk reaction to that question. I, I know um, you've often joked that from the standpoint of uh, the eschaton, things are always looking good, yeah. right? <laughs> we know where this Eschatologically, is going. Eschatologically, things are looking great. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, and and I think there there is a truth to that. I think that um, that does kind of <laughs> keep me going sometimes. Like, well, you know, sometimes life uh, is a tough slog, but there is ultimate hope. And I don't think, especially as Christians, we should downplay that as sort of an ongoing evergreen source of hope, mm -hmm. so to speak. But as I thought about uh, 2020, a theme kind of emerged, um, which is, I think, I think the title of, of this podcast is Hope in the Heavens. Uh, and by heavens, I mean 
that pre-modern view of the heavens, like pre-notion of space, where we have the Ptolemaic seven heavens, right? Mm -hmm. And um, and each of the planets uh, that we observe is sort of governs a sphere uh, of of heaven that um, at the center of which uh, that, that makes up a cosmos. Mm-hmm. Um, there, this is the language of cosmos, not universe, right? Universe, I think, is a, also a modern term. Um, at the center of which is the Earth, you know, and it's not, <laughs> we're not going around the sun. The sun's going around us. Um, and, you know, to be fair, I think, you know, we like to turn up our nose at that notion and claim an air of modern superiority to be fair though that is what it looks like you know the sun moves across the sky and it sure looks like it's going around us not the other way around and i think that that notion of our phenomenal experience uh, is where we can still get wisdom from the heavens um but but the reason that that i'm getting a little ahead of myself the reason that that kind of popped up is I read a few books in, in 2020. I had been given a book um, called Planet Narnia by uh, Michael Ward, um, who's an Anglican priest and scholar. Um, I think he's at Oxford or was when, when he wrote the book. Um, and I think it's the, the culmination of his doctoral dissertation. But his thesis in that book is that each of the seven books of the Chronicles of Narnia maps onto one of the seven medieval heavens mm-hmm. um, and is a, an expression of that, um, that planetary influence. Uh, and it's an, it's an interesting theory. It's, it's, he's, I think, the first to kind of espouse that. And it, and it really does have a, a lot of explanatory power. If you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia and you read this book, I, I think um, you'll, you'll be amazed at kind of how illuminating it is um, about what Lewis might have been up to in those books beyond sort of the obvious Christian references. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's a big, big part of this. Um, and I, I read that through actually kind of off and on through, through most of 2020, I was actually finishing the Chronicles of Narnia with my kids. I'd been reading that to them and we read the last two um, books in 2020, uh, I think. So the magician's nephew and um, the last battle. We we were reading them in the order of publication, not necessarily uh, chronology. Um, the correct order, by the way. That's right. That is the the yeah. the right way to read those books. <laughs> um, and then uh, I had also read C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy uh, with a with a close friend of mine. In fact, the the same friend um, who I mentioned who who set Bethany and I up way back. Uh, when we were living together in grad school. Um, and it, it was a great, a great medium for us to kind of bond at, at a distance over, you know, over Skype or uh, FaceTime conversations, having, having read a few chapters at the time. But um, part of the case that Ward makes for his book is that Lewis is doing in the space trilogy, sort of a pre-version, or you see his fascination with the heavens um, mm-hmm. and, and, and that, that medieval sense of the heavens uh, in the space trilogy as sort of a, a first attempt to write a work of fiction around those themes that then gets reworked into the, the Narnia 
books about a decade later um, in a far more subtle and, and maybe artistically sophisticated fashion. Um, so th this is all kind of coming together. I'm reading Ward's book, finishing the Chronicles of Narnia, reading the Space Trilogy, and then I've been slowly working my way through um, the Divine Comedy over many years, and I finally finished that. So uh, that culminates in the Paradiso. And Dante, as a very much a medieval thinker uh, and poet, thinks about actual heaven in terms of the seven heavens and mm -hmm. has different um, different saints in the different spheres according to um, the influence of those uh, planets. And so that this kind of this kind of all these themes were swirling around in, in the heavens. Um, and finally in, in 2020, I started actually looking at the stars and the planets I could observe in my mm. backyard. And, and it gave me joy. It just, it was like this delightful thing. Um, and I can only describe it as it, you, you, something analogous to hearing the stories about something or knowing that, yeah, that's a thing it's real. And then experiencing it for the first time yeah. and of course yes they're up there yeah that that's all real but um i got an app on my phone and i was like you know you point it at at the sky and it tells you what you're looking at and it's like oh my gosh i can see yeah. orion's belt there's mars there's jupiter you know it's like wow these are really there <laughs> and yes of course they are but I, right. it was my <laughs> first personal experience with um <laughs> with the heavens and and the heavenly bodies um in a way that I hadn't encountered them before, such that I would, I would, I would kind of, whenever I was outside taking the trash out or whatever, I would look up and I could find them. I knew where they were. And they, you know, over time through the summer, you know, they're, they're moving, you know, they're, they're moving to different places in the sky and, and things are happening. And it's, it's, it's really remarkable. Uh, and it kind of, it reminded me of, of um, a catechesis we had a couple of years ago, uh, David Tollefson, did a talk on um, astronomy, and uh, I don't even remember what was our theme. It was, I think it was. Was it, it the was, grace in? It, well, maybe it was the grace in, or what? It was the uh, the church calendar one, because I think it mapped oh, on loosely yeah. to seasons for saints or a feast or day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just I found that so fascinating. Um, if in fact, if you get nothing else from this podcast, go back to that one and listen to it. <laughs> um, and when and he kind of he started with with uh, or he cited at some point Genesis one. You know, we've got Genesis one fourteen to fifteen, and God said, "Let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs." and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And he, he drew attention to the fact that we are okay with the idea of the stars, the lights in the, in the heavens being for marking time for days and years. Sure. But we've kind of lost that sense of the heavens as a sign as, mm -hmm. as something with meaning. Um, and I think that's kind of what Lewis saw as a loss from the movement from the medieval period to to the modern period and and wanted to recover in some fashion uh, nobody's saying we're going to try to go back to a pre-copernican worldview and pretend right, that the right. earth is at the center of everything i mean no no we're not advocating for that. right <laughs> that's not that's not what this is about um but but uh 
but there's a quote from from Lewis that that Ward highlights that he says the character of the planets as conceived by medieval astrology seems to me to have a permanent value as spiritual symbols to provide a phenomenology of spirit which is especially worthwhile in our own generation and he he's mentioning that phenomenology of spirit he's kind of channel, channeling um, the German philosopher Hegel and he's not, I don't think he means what Hegel ultimately means by the phenomenology of spirit, but he's touching on that, that sort of, I mean, phenomenal sense that we observe the sun goes around and Mm. well, and we observe these, these heavenly bodies and they mean something to us. They, they, they shape us in a way, um, by this meaning and, um, that has a permanent value, um, and, it, and as I've reflected on on this in, in what it might mean to recover some of that pre-modern notion of, of the heavens, um, I've, I've reflected on in, in, uh, in Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher who's, you know, um, famously wrote the, the secular age, one of the... Um, phenomena that he talks about is the rise of the buffered self in in the modern period uh versus the porous self of the pre-modern mm-hmm. period um and behind that 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 idea of a porous self is we are subject to influences outside of our control um angels demons spells right you know you have all these thoughts that um, somebody, yeah, a witch could hex me, right? Or mm-hmm. uh, and that's why I've got to have some holy water handy. You know, um, the the sacraments certainly are very real and powerful um, in and of themselves, and up to and including the heavens exert an influence. You know, it mattered what sign was was in the sky and what planet was dominant, um, mm-hmm. and and they're not they're not necessarily for all that. Um, problematically astrological or, or in the pop sense that we think of, like, this is going to determine exactly what happens to me, right. but they believe that this somehow matters that, that this is, this is having an influence on the earth. This doesn't absolve my agency or the contingency of the future, but it has an influence in a way that in the modern period, we just don't have a category for anymore. Yeah. Um, and this is what I think Taylor means by the buffered self. We, we, none of that affects us. Yeah. You can, you can put a spell on me all you want, but it's not real. So it's not going to have an impact, right? right? If it does, it's a psychological phenomenon. It's happening in my mind. You know, I could make something up and believe mm-hmm. it, but that doesn't make it true out there. One of the things that I think, especially in, um, in the last year has highlighted one of the weaknesses of the buffered self worldview is physical illness is something like a pandemic like Mm -hmm. COVID-19 for all of our technological and scientific advance, we could not protect ourselves from this. We did not, the buffer didn't work against a pandemic. Right. Um, and that's interesting to me because one of our most common words for illness that we all suffer, that, that we can't um, 
totally defend ourselves from is the flu, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's actually short for influenza, which ultimately derives from the Latin of influence. And it's a reference to the influence of the stars. Hmm. You got sick because of what was happening in the heavens, right? And, yeah. um, and that's sort of a hangover from this pre-modern worldview that exists in a very real sense, even in our world, although our outlook on the world, our, our, our worldview has, has changed such that, that we don't really... We don't really believe in that anymore. We don't, we don't have time for it. Um, so it's been interesting to, to, with these various sources, kind of think through um, what a recovery of the pre-modern medieval heavens could look like and, and could provide meaning for us. Um, you know, in, 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 you know, in, in new ways, in, in ways that, that kind of make sense of our world in a way that, that uh, a purely um, rationalistic worldview or, or coldly materialistic uh, worldview yeah. uh, could not. Um, yeah, there's that that cold materialism is what I think about a lot. Um, I'm sure we we talked some about this over a, a fire and drinks uh, mm-hmm, months ago mm-hmm. when you had told me what the topic was, and I'm I'm sure I mentioned this then, but there is. Um, so I, I was introduced to the to the poetry of. Robert Frost, not through not, not through high school English class, but through um, actually being in a, in a choir that sang through, there's a series of Frost poems that are set to choral music by a, a composer named, or I don't know if it's called composing or arranging, if you're just putting it, setting poetry that already exists. In any mm-hmm. case, Randall Thompson is the, is the, the composer's name. Um, and he, he set Frost's um, Choose Something Like a Star and and so I have mm. I have that poem sort of in my mind. I, I cannot hear it other than lyrics, but um, in it, you know, Frost is talking about looking at a star, and it is this this dealing with quantifying things. So there's um, mm. there's this line in the middle: um, some mystery becomes the proud, but to be wholly taciturn in your reserve is not allowed. Say mm. something to us we can learn by heart, and when alone, repeat. Say something, and it says I burn. But say with what degree of heat, talk Fahrenheit, talk centigrade, use language we can comprehend. Tell us what elements you blend. It gives us strangely little aid, but does tell something in the end. Mm. Um, that's a mm. poem that I, I, I return to that poem all the time because it's this sense of like, there's this phenomenal object in the sky that is burning, but like, no, give me numbers. I need to know yeah. what your temperature is. And it's a level of control. It is a level yeah. of demystification. It's a level of like, well, we understand all of the things we, yeah. we get everything. Um, and there is a level to which a, a pandemic knocks you out of your mm. perceived sense of control. Yes. It, it knocks you out of a perceived sense of like, well, we, we can fix all of the diseases, right? Like there's a disease, mm-hmm. we have a way to fix it. And there's a way that illness exposes you um, to a level of um, lack of control, which suddenly knocks you off of off of the, the pedestal that we sort of postmoderns have put ourselves in and complete yeah. understanding, right? Um, and so I think about the, I think you the, the cosmos versus the universe. Yeah. Well, you made and just that, Right, like that sense of like, am I looking at at the sky and learning about it in a way that 
increases my awe or am I looking at it in a way that helps me control it, help me master myself over it? Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's two different types of, of learning, right? Yeah. 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 That, that actually, it reminds me of a line in the voyage of the Dawn Treader um, towards the end of it. They meet someone who is a star mm -hmm. uh, and, and this, this puzzles Eustace, who's kind of the, the dimwit who's, who's going through a, a pretty steep learning curve in, in accepting <laughs> um, the reality of Narnia and as well as um, really his own sanctification and growth as a human being. And, and he's, he's met this star and he's kind of puzzled. And he says, in our world, a star is a huge ball of flaming gas. Mm -hmm. And the star responds, even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, <laughs> but only what it is made of. You know, to your point, you know, get me, get me the numbers, get me the, you know, what is it made of? I think I understand it. Well, no, yeah. you've just scratched the surface. You, you've just been able to describe it. You haven't come to know it. Yeah. Right. Um, there's a big difference there. Uh, and yeah, to, to kind of keep going with this uh, universe cosmos distinction, we even call the discipline of studying the stars something else. Um and I don't know, I don't, I want to be careful not to make too big of a dis distinction here, but it, it is significant to me. Um, we call it astronomy and it used to be called astrology. I mean, we still have lots of logies, right? We've got biology, we've got, got all kinds of them, geology. Um, so it's not, it's not that the moderns just dispensed with all the logies, but we recognized, well, there's been a fundamental shift in how we think about the stars. And so we're not doing that anymore. So we have to right. give it a new name and we've chosen astronomy. Well, astronomy, astro, right? That's, that's the word for star and namas is law. So we think in terms of the law of the stars, we used to think of it in terms of the word of the stars, the logos yeah. of, of the aster, right? The, the, the word of the stars and the word is communicative. It's, it's not, not that, that laws have nothing to do with, with, human relationships or, or anything, but, but it is, it fits more that modern cold mechanistic. This is always the way it is. It just follows these rules. That's all there is to it versus something is being communicated here. Mm -hmm. Yes. There, there's a logic to this, but, but it's kind of relational. Um, and it actually makes me think of, of Psalm 19, the beginning of, of, of Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. One day, speaks to another and one night gives knowledge to another there is neither speech nor language and yet their voices and their voices are not heard but their sound has gone out into all lands and their words to the end of the world you know that i mean i that's just a beautiful beautiful um yeah couple of verses to me uh this, this idea that there is speech without sound you know you can't literally hear it but they're communicating, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the medievals think the stars are communicating. You know, these bodies really are communicating to us. They exert this influenza on us. Um, one of the things that was really interesting to learn about in going through Ward's book was um, just what each of the seven heavens meant to the medievals. And, and it was interesting because um, there, there's kind of, each one actually produces one of the metals that's found in the earth. 
Okay. So uh, all of the metal in earth is due to some astral influence or some, some actually planetary and they're, they're thinking of, of the seven heavens as governed by a planet. Um, the moon is a planet to the medievals. The sun is a planet as well as, you know, mm-hmm. most of the planets we think of. Um, and, and, and so that, that metal kind of characterizes or, or fits with the, the, inf- the other character and influence of, of that planet. So, um, for instance, the the moon produces silver in the earth, um, and uh, the the sun produces gold, um, mm-hmm. and uh, Venus produces copper, and um, Saturn, which is the last of the planets associated with with death and time and sort of negative events, produces lead. This very mm-hmm. heavy, you know, um, yeah solid uh dense metal um and and mercury of course produces mercury uh in in the (laughs) we don't have a new name for that one yeah uh but but i mean that and this this idea that that um all of like the, the human experience uh and and characteristics and how we encounter the world what we encounter in the world can be sort of thematized by the influence of one of these spheres was fascinating to me. And, and I think kind of what, what Lewis wants to do in, in, um, in recovering them and putting them in his literature and kind of showing how these themes um, can become the face of God to us in different, in different um circumstances and in different contexts and and that's aslan in each of the books as as ward shows it takes on the character of that planet and Mm. and shows those those qualities um in in compelling ways aslan picks up all of these because we want to i think especially for those of us who are not like like so now we went through the the chronicles of narnia with our kids as well and so i think i think for many people, their association with the Chronicles is strictly Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. Yes. Um, where Aslan is just like clear, obvious Jesus as we think about him. Yep. Um, but and so we think about these other these other emotions or these other types of Aslan. When you encounter him in the other books, you sort of feel like eh, I, I, don't, I don't know how I feel about that one. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like when he's intentionally wounding someone in, in Horse and His Boy when they're running away yes. or like, yes. like all these different kinds of Aslan. You're like, well, that's not the Jesus lion that I'm that, that I am yeah. that I am yeah. wanting to, to picture. And it's fascinating that Lewis does that kind of work and that that, that gives us a much more cosmic Christ, right? Like to borrow the medieval stuff and and yeah like he is then over all of these things and represents all these things and then it it makes our little trite like he's not a safe lion but he is good like a much bigger statement yes when he's not like liam neeson all the time right he's the one who voiced him in right yes 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 (laughs) he's a a good voice for aslan yeah having (laughs) yeah having just watched the most of the star wars movies while on, on COVID isolation, I'm also thinking of, of Liam Neeson in Phantom Menace. But like, uh-huh. <laughs> right? Like he's not just like soft, kind, near grandfather mm-hmm. figure. Like he's also these other things as well. Um, and so maybe, maybe he isn't safe 
now in a way that's actually a little bit scarier than just yeah. like, oh yeah he's not safe like i don't know absolutely it, yeah no absolutely and i think it it kind of communicates the lordship of christ over every possible aspect of reality and every experience that a human being is capable capable of mm-hmm. that the face of christ can be found there too that um somehow the there is no situation in which the image is absent right it could be mm-hmm. shattered it could be marred it could be twisted but there is always something of christ that can be found there and there's something profoundly incarnational about that 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 god like enters our reality the reality yeah. we experience the physical reality the reality marked by and in time all of it can become expressive of god yeah. uh, and i think lewis is is definitely trying to communicate that in in possibly i mean all of all of his fictional writings but certainly in in um the the chronicles of narnia um it's inf- so um to talk about how how jesus or how aslan could somehow take on these um <laughs> i don't want to say alternative because he's always himself right but right. uh these these character qualities that we might not typically associate with them. So, so the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is under the sign of Jove. It is Jupiter, um, mm-hmm. which is the king of the planets. Uh, and so all of that, that um, it, it's a natural fit for Jesus, right? He is king. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and that comes through in, in that book. Um, you've got things like, um, uh, let's see. So, Lewis associates, uh, so some some of what he's doing is um, reading the heavens through. Um, I think it's Edmund Edmund Spencer, uh, sort of a uh, Renaissance era uh, English uh, writer. With uh, the Fairy Queen is very mm-hmm. uh, one of his famous pieces. Lewis is very influenced by this, and part of his job as a professor as a medievalist is to interact with all this literature and yeah. just getting ideas and th- this idea of um let's see if winter past and guilt forgiven is a line that lewis puts in a poem to describe jupiter uh, well before you know writing yeah, the yeah. chronicles of narnia and so you get that theme you know it's perpetually winter and mm-hmm. um and the classic um uh you know atonement uh is narrative is is enacted in that mm-hmm. in that book so this idea of winter passing and guilt forgiven um is a theme in the line which in the wardrobe and he's coming to reign the four children become kings and queens so this theme of royalty um is is very present and and it's a it's a natural um natural fit but the next book um again, if we're going chronologically is uh, when well, I think in the nature, in the, in the arc of the story too, is, is Prince Caspian, which is under the sign of Mars, Mars being the God of war mm-hmm. in, um, in the Roman pantheon and, and what is associated with that, with that planet. Um, what do you do with that? If you're a Christian, you know, are we going to, are we going to celebrate war mm-hmm. um, and violence? Um, and, and this is where, uh, the influence of the heavens 
is interesting um, because it depends on, so the, the influence in and of itself is a good, we have to say that because it's a created thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's part of God's creation. Its effect on human creatures is good or bad depending on the character of that creature. Okay. So um, if you're a bad person, the influence of a planet is going to go to bad results. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if you're a good person, you know, goes, goes good results. And he says the fault lies not in the influence, but in the terrestrial nature, which receives it in a fallen earth. It is permitted by divine justice that we and our earth and air respond thus disastrously to influences, which are good in themselves. Bad influences are those of which our corrupt world can no longer make a good use. The bad patient makes the agent bad. In effect, if all things here below were rightly disposed to the heavens, all influence would be extremely good. When an evil effect follows them, this must be attributed to the ill-disposed subject. So for Lewis, Mars is... um, its dominant influence is a kind of strength in the face of necessity. Okay. And that kind of strength can be perverted. And it, it, we see it in, in warlords and tyrants and, and people who are violent, uh, who, who abuse um, power uh, over the weak, but it can also be, and, and this is where Lewis is, is going to defend um, the need to, engage in a war sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. and, and a nod to sort of the, the classic position of the church on just war theory, right? There are yeah. some times when this is what necessity calls for. We have to engage in this um, to defend the good, to defend mm-hmm. the weak. Uh, and so the image of, of this for him is the uh, idealized medieval knight, Right, who it was, it was exercising power in the cause of the good, um, on behalf of the weak and, and yeah. need. Um, but it is also, and it, Dante has um, the sphere of Mars as the heaven of the martyrs, hmm. because possibly in association with the usually violent death they suffered, but also because that is strength in the face of, of necessity. It, it, it takes a kind of martial strength to die for the faith. Um, and that, that is their heaven. That is their witness. That is the influence that is expressed by the martyrs. It is a martial um, influence yeah. that is a very different way of waging war, of thinking about what war might mean. Um, yeah, like I think about, I mean, just a few weeks ago when when Joy and Angelo were talking about Perpetua and Felicity mm. and and uh, I think it's Perpetua um, who has to guide the soldier's hand to kill her because he's mm-hmm. shaking. Like I'm reading that in, in graduate school. I remember being like, just in awe of that moment of yeah. the story and hearing Angela tell it again. Um, if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to, to Angela talk about Perpetua and Felicity, but is they are embodying that thing you're describing. It is that yes. martyr who goes in and like, like 
guides the this the the hand like that is a level of yeah of fortitude of of that yes. all those things that we often associate with war heroes but in in a different context i mean played out differently um i i also think i don't remember where i even first heard this story but allegedly j.i packer when he told the story of thomas cranmer going mm-hmm. to the fire and putting his hand in first apparently yeah. packer used to cry when he told that story or teared up or something mm-hmm. i have no idea even where i heard that but i would love for for this to continue to to develop and be part of packer's mythology yes um, <laughs> but that like cranmer who who signed who signed away his protestant values uh-huh. but then goes to the, the uh-huh. fire anyways puts the the hand that betrayed him and betrayed sort of true doctrine into the fire first like that's yeah. the fortitude yeah that that you're, you're talking about there right yes. like that's a special exactly. kind of fortitude exactly that is what baptized mars looks like hmm <laughs> Baptize yes. Mars is a new category yes. that I think yes. I <laughs> think about more. Yeah. 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 Maybe, maybe we can start, start the bid to rename it like the martyr planet or yeah. <laughs> shift Mars to martyr somehow. There we go. Um, but yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, that, that kind of exemplifies what it might mean to kind of shift what seeing Jesus in something like, um, a, a human phenomenon that's usually associated with war, destruction, mm-hmm. um, a violence that we would condemn, uh, what that could look like to find Jesus in that part of human reality yeah. that looks irredeemable or broken. Um, you, you see, you know, maybe it's the strength of the very victims themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, and even thinking about this, I mean, it, this makes me think again about this difference between cosmos and universe and this idea mm-hmm. of like, as you were talking about looking at the, at the stars, like knowing about them versus experiencing them. And yeah. there is a sense that like knowing about the heavens and these influences and these things experientially is a very different thing than knowing things about them that you know. Um, yes. And there is just a world of difference. And we talk about it, people talk about it in terms of education all the time, right? Like your, mm-hmm. your idealized like TED Talk education thing is like, instead of having the kids learn about earthworms, they dug in the ground, found earthworms. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like there is, or anybody who goes and visits Greece or the Holy Lands and says, you know, I was reading these texts these new testament texts and i i read about these places but going to ephesus or going to walking the road that went between jerusalem and and jericho so i knew what the good the parable of the good samaritan i could have visualized it yeah yeah exactly there is something about um the buffered self that always has Mm -hmm. information about things um but never truly knows them and i think it's the same way even thinking about I think it's why I've become such a huge advocate of things like rule of life and like mm-hmm. daily prayer and that sense of like, you can learn all kinds of interesting things about God, but there is something about actually like tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, that, yes. that, that makes a huge difference. Um, and it's, it's odd that in a season when we've all been cooped up, um, not being able to experience anything and having to engage everything through 
<laughs> through the buffer of the internet and through the buffer yeah. of, of, of FaceTime that, that they, it, it becomes an opportunity to have a sort of, I don't know, renaissance about the value of experience, about yes. actually being yeah. present and, and being open and vulnerable to experiences and things like that. Um, gives you a different perspective, I guess. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I mean, and similar to this idea of, of, of a classic distinction of knowing about God versus knowing God, mm-hmm. right. And you can study all, you know, um, and, and most people want to sign up for the former, not the latter yeah. when it comes down to it. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I want to look at two of the planets that, that were really important to Lewis because it's, it's part of how I think, um, the planets provide a framework of meaning that can be hopeful for the year we've had. Mm. Um, I mentioned that Jupiter is the sign of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Jupiter is Lewis's favorite planet. Uh, it's it's his favorite um, influence, and and that shines through in the Space Trilogy, Ransom. The main character of, of those books takes on a very, he grows in, in his joviality. Mm-hmm. Um, he becomes very jovial or, or kingly, you know, um, by, by the end of it, um, where he's even sort of embodying um, King Arthur in, in a way. Okay. He links it up with the Arthurian legend. And he, he refers to himself as the Pendragon. Um, he's very, he kind of rules a, a community. Um, and 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 so this jovial influence that's kind of been growing in the but it, it's coming to to full force there, um, and there, and there's always something of Jove in I think each of the the Narnia books. It, it's mm-hmm. interesting, the characters often say by Jove, you know, this is a this is yeah. a phrase in the books, and I always just thought, well, that's just quirky British stuff in the middle of the 20th <laughs> century. Well, no, actually, it's quite intentional, um, and he's actually evoking something of the kingly aspect of Christ hmm. um, usually when, when those, those phrases occur. Um, and let's see there. So part of his love of Jupiter and, and the sign of Jove and, and, and by, by kingly, he's, he's referring to um what we might think of in, in Christian ther- terms as the, the reign of Christ that we're looking forward to. It's, it's the king at rest. It's not the king establishing power mm-hmm. or, or fighting war. It's, it's the king who is reigning, reigning over a peaceful, well-ordered kingdom. Um, there's, there's festivities. There's, there's dancing, dancing. There's celebration. It's a, it's a rich, like the feast. Yeah. Um, as we think about a feast and even feast days in the Christian year, um, those are jovial times. Those are times of, of full celebration, you know, where, where we're not holding any, anything back, um, and delighting in, uh, in, in life and in one another and in order and in, 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 um, praiseworthiness, you know, that this Mm. is, this is the jovial, uh, and part of why it's so important to Lewis is that he believed, and I think rightly that um that very much was not the sign of his time Hmm. in the first half of the 20th century uh we fought two world wars that sort of were the last nails in the coffin of 
um, I mean, people are talking about the end of history in the 20th century, right? right. We're, we're at this time where it's like, what happens next? You know, that not only is the medieval project conclusively done, but maybe even the modern project is done. You know, we're, we're like reeling after, after these experiences by, by the middle of, uh, of the 20th century in, in the West. Um, and it becomes sort of in vogue to embrace that fact. And to be taken seriously is to um, is to to be okay with that, and and maybe even to be nihilistic. I mean, this this is a time right where um, existentialism is on the rise, right? Yeah. And um, um, we're we're quite openly uh, dabbling in in atheism and and the meaninglessness of everything. And if there's meaning at all, we've got to make it up, you know. And uh, and decide for ourselves what that's going to be. I mean, uh, apologies if, you know, that's sort of a crude overcharacterization, but this is kind of in the water and um, Lewis has no time for it. Hmm. And for him, the, this is all stuff that's associated with Saturn. Saturn is the last of the seven planets mm -hmm. and it is associated with death. It is associated with uh, destruction, with the end of all things. And with time in the sense of like endlessness, not eternity, but like a time that is years stacked on years, stacked on years, that's just contributing to the, the weight of it. It's like oppressive time. Yeah. Um, so Father Time in uh, The Silver Chair is, is a nod to Saturn. That book is, is uh, associated with the moon, not um, Saturn, which is the last battle. I mean, that that's the destruction of Narnia. It's the end of all things. That's that's the sign of Saturn. Um, and so it, it he views uh, <laughs> T.S. Eliot actually as as a poet that typifies this this obsession with Saturn, and he he wants none of it. You know, he's like mm. very critical of of T.S. Eliot. Um, he he says it would be foolish not to recognize the growth in our criticism of something that I can only describe as literary manichaeism. For those hmm. who, who don't know, Manichaeism is this sort of um, ancient uh, worldview where dualism is, is how we explain everything. There's a good principle and an evil principle. They're at war with each other. Um, and, and that's why there's conflict. That's why there's good and evil. But it, but it actually carves up reality into good and bad things. And so yeah. Christians have always been against this because everything that is as we say every Sunday, seen and unseen is a creature of God and therefore good. Yeah. Um, evil only, it does not have proper existence. It only exists as it corrupts something good. So the church has always been a, opposed to Manichaeism. So he's, he's characterizing this as a kind of literary Manichaeism, a dislike of peace and pleasure and heartsease simply as such. To be bilious is in some circles almost the first qualification for a place in the temple of fame. We distrust the pleasures of imagination. However hotly and unmerrily we preach the pleasures of the body, we want, in fact, just what Dunn can give us. Poet John Dunn, mm -hmm. who, who um, he loved in his youth, but now kind of associates with this, this movement um, to embrace and celebrate and reduce everything down to Saturn, I think is, is kind of his, his um, qualm with all of this. Um, something stern and tough though not necessarily virtuous, something that does not conciliate. Born under Saturn, we do well to confess the liking complexionally forced upon us. 
but not to attempt that wisdom which dominates the stars is pusillanimous, and to set up our limitation as a norm, to believe against all experience in a saturnocentric universe is folly. And so this is a this is a work of criticism, and he has T. S. Eliot in his sights. Yeah. He's just going <laughs> after him. I mean, even you know, I'm I'm, I'm not one way that you can love T. S. Eliot. I know <laughs> I appreciate some of his work, but um, Lewis is triggered by him because yeah. he he gets this like, mm, no, we need to combat this despair that we're living in with Jove, with a recovery of this. Um, kingly Christ that's come to reign that has created everything that's good and and um, there is meaning there is something to celebrate um, so there's there's something at stake very much for him uh, and you know at, in, as a sort of an aside I've wondered kind of if there's been a shift in the zeitgeist because I think I mean even in, in my own life, I'm, I, I can resonate with this sense of in order to be taken seriously, you have to like view the world as bleak and acknowledge mm-hmm. everything's terrible and there's maybe no meaning. Um, but I wonder if we're still there. I mean, I think, um, I don't know, maybe it's too hard to say where, where we've shifted or if, if we have shifted, I don't know. That could be the topic of a whole nother discussion, right. Of, of what our, our current cultural zeitgeist is and, and, and which our, of the which planets planet we, if yeah. any it might maps on to um but yeah for for lewis it's saturn is is the one that dominates the 20th century uh and and he's very much fighting against it even as he wants to give it its due right you can't completely do away with it because right. it too is a creature of god it too has its place and it too can wear the face of Aslan. And, right. and he, he does this in the last battle when Aslan destroys his creation. You know, he, he brings Narnia to a close at the end of that book. Um, and in a very moving, moving passage, um, he wakes up Father Time that we've met in the silver chair and, mm-hmm. and he returns in the last battle and um, he blows a horn and the kids or the, the, you know, the children in the book, they, they don't know what's happening at first. It, it kind of looks like it's, it's raining. You know, they're, they're not sure these lights are coming down and they realize the stars are falling from the heavens and, and it's just getting blacker and blacker and blacker. And it's just, it's just it, there's nothing. It, what is, is, is kind of crumbling and eroding into nothingness. Um, and it's interesting. Our word disaster literally means a removal of the stars it's a de-starring um that's what a disaster is uh and it puts me in mind actually of, of psalm 74 where the psalmist um says in 74 9 we see not our signs there is no more any prophet neither is there among us any that knoweth how long it's it's a psalm of of lament, but it begins with that we see not our signs, Ooh. those things that told us what the world meant, the things that gave us meaning, are not visible to us anymore. That is a disaster. The signs are gone. The stars are gone. I mean, for them, it's it's right that the temple has been desecrated and and the the elements in the temple have been taken away or destroyed, and and but 
but those are the signs. They, they, are, they serve the same function as the stars. They represent to the community who the community is, what they value, what they hold together, and, and they're gone. And that's, that's existentially um, crushing, right? Yeah. Who are we anymore? Are we a people? If we, if we see not our own signs, I mean, and, and this is literally the end of the world and in, in uh, the last battle, you know, that yeah. is the sign of the end of the world is that the stars are gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I mean, that's kind of made me think about our situation at all souls um, on a couple of levels, you know, obviously our rector was removed. It's a very powerful sign of our, our community. Um, but in COVID, we haven't even been able to see each other. The, you know, the signs of our life together have been impaired. I mean, we've been able to do it. We've been able to keep going and, and praise God for that. But there's a real sense in which we could say with the psalmist, we see not our signs. Um, and, and you layer on COVID on top of this and the things that we do, the people we can see, the experiences we can have that characterize flourishing mm-hmm. and a normal life have been taken away from us. They are not before us anymore. We have lived through um, a kind of Saturnine year, a kind of, you know, a, um, the end of many things or, or what looks like a disaster where, you know, everything that would communicate to us normally what we would point to say yeah this is a sign of of who we are um or a sign that things are okay or that we can hope in the future it's gone right yeah um or occluded Mm -hmm. um and and so it, it seems to me that at least of the last 12 months saturn has been a dominant sign right um but for lewis Saturn never has the last word. Um, in the quote that I that I read a little earlier about um, recovering something of medieval astrology, you know, he says the character of the planets is conceived by medieval astrology. It seemed to me to have a permanent value as spiritual symbols, um, which is worthwhile in our own generation. That quote ends with another line where Lewis says of Saturn, we know more than enough, but who does not need to be reminded of Jove? Hmm. And even in the last battle after Aslan deconstructs Narnia and, and rolls it up like a garment, right? Uh, Hmm. We meet Aslan again as King. He gives it back. They're, they're on the other side of the, the stable door and Narnia is there bigger and more real than it was before. Um, and, and there's kind of this um, meeting of Jove again. It's not going back to Jove though. We've gone through Saturn and the happy news on the other side of it that maybe we wouldn't have expected to see is that Jove meets us again. Mm-hmm. And it's recognizably the same Jove, but different for having gone through Saturn, mm-hmm. right? Um, 
it's, it's kind of like at the at the end of uh, Dawn Treader again, when Aslan says, no, you can't come back to Narnia. You have to learn to meet me in your own world. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, he mentions, he kind of alludes to death and says, you know, it will involve crossing a river. You know, that, that's what I can tell you, but I will be on the other side of it. You know, no. um, this, uh, this idea that there's hope even even beyond the end is is very much a christian theme right it's it's resurrection it's what we are looking forward to um in a week's time at the end of at the end of lent and of course at the end of all things as well um and as i was stargazing right uh, casually and informally in in 2020 i was struck by the fact that at the end of the year and and maybe some of you read the same headlines I did um, and, and looked up to see this, we had an unusual conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. Hmm. Round about um, the winter solstice, as we neared Christmas, uh, Saturn and Jupiter aligned. And it was kind of, it, it made for a big, bright, star in the heavens kind of like the christmas star right it was very seasonally appropriate but it was also seasonally appropriate because we've we've got these two planets that are are kind of kind of opposites right you've got the celebration of life the rule of of the king over all that is and the affirmation of all that is and then the sign of the destruction of everything, the end, the the culmination, the conclusion, the the sign that forces us to look at the fact that we are limited things and that we will face an end, that we are not forever. We we will come to an end. Um, they they come together, and then they move past each other again. And so, depending on how you look at it, you can say in a hopeless way that yes saturn and and jove have passed and now we're on the saturn side and there's no hope or we could say we've been through saturn and now here's jove again and 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 we and jove has taken us past saturn and and we've met we've met jove again we've met hope um and that that was kind of just it was just kind of a a delightful unlooked for um, occurrence in the heavens, uh, right? Literally that uh, concluded this awful year that we've had that, that was kind of a, a happy sign of hope. Um, and it made me, I, I, I found it very resonant with um, another, another quote of, of Lewis's on sort of defending astrology. Obviously mm-hmm. you know, he didn't, he didn't, believe in it quite the way even the medievals did but he said um this is after having seen an unusual conjunction of the planets one night and um this one of saturn and and jupiter i think hadn't taken place for something like 600 years um Mm -hmm. it was a very rare thing that that we got a got to see in at the end of 2020 um but lewis is writing to his brother and he says that now he understood what is at the back of all astrology Namely, the difficulty of believing that anything so splendid is without significance. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I have to just 
say here, here to that. And, yeah. <laughs> and certainly, uh, you know, it, it, uh, as I reflect on, on 2020 and the, and the little things that brought me joy, which I think, um, if you don't know what's giving you hope at any given time, um, you might start by looking at those little things, however small that, that bring you joy. Um, something like this, this recovery of, of a pre-modern worldview when it, when it comes to the heavens and, and meeting it for myself in the actual mm-hmm. night sky um, was a bright spot in the year. Yeah. We, you, you said earlier, you know, we can spend a lot of time wondering what the, the current zeitgeist is. And I think yeah. there's, there's a deep longing to recover those signs. I think mm. about um, parenting a lot of like, parenting stuff that there's a whole like world's okayest dad or world's yeah, okay, yeah, right like there's yes, this push of yeah. like like no like enjoy that glass of wine at the end of the day there's this try and recovery of these small signs but i think that the zeitgeist is to miss that the signs are pointing to something beyond is yes. to is to is to feast but never to recognize that it's pointing to something else is to yeah. like yeah. find a good thing to hold on to as an end in and of itself um, we were we were talking in our little pre-show conversation about like, mm-hmm. you know traditions and symbols that that are sort of self-referential. Like we do this thing because it's a fun thing, but yeah. but there's that there's something really powerful about that that more porous view of the world that like these are beautiful things and and maybe they connect us to something even yes. even more significant. Like the the stars are beautiful and and having eyes to see Jupiter and Saturn saying something yeah. um, that it is, that maybe it, it is a sign, a thing that points to something else, a thing that points to something beyond that is in fact good. And we can actually really sink our teeth into beyond just sort of a, a nihilistic, let's just yes, eat and drink exactly. because tomorrow we die. Exactly. Um, let's eat and drink because tomorrow we die. And then we, then we rise yeah. to life again. Maybe that's the, Yes, absolutely. Uh, that's the the further look of it. I think that's, yeah, that's a really beautiful picture of of ways to find hope even, um, even in the night sky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's eat and drink because Christ is King, even yeah. though we may die, right? Even though we will one day die, yeah. we will find Him on the other side of the valley of the shadow of death. Drove um, all over again. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, I. This has been really great. Do you have any other nuggets of hope from the from the stars here? There's lots to chew on already. <laughs> there's, there's no, there's a lot there. I would just not. I, I would just yeah recommend um, Michael Ward's book Planet Narnia if if you're at all. I mean, if you've read or are reading the Chronicles of Narnia, the space trilogy. I mean, it's it's very illuminating. Will give you a lot to think about. Um, but yeah, no, I th- I think we can <laughs> I think we can leave it there. <laughs> Well, thank you, Joel, for sharing all of this and for looking up at the Absolutely. night sky and for bringing that to us. And um, yeah, we're we're off our podcast next week so we can take Holy Week off of recording, but um, we'll see you all at Holy Week services. Grace and peace, everybody. Thank you. Great. Thank you.